Father, thank you for your abundant grace today. We thank you for the fact that most everyone in this room have been saved by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that great gift to your people this morning. Father, because of our position in Jesus Christ, we can come before your throne with thanksgiving and praise. And we do just that. We enter your courts with thanksgiving. We enter your sanctuary with praise. We celebrate your goodness to us. Father, we have been reminded this week that as a nation you have prospered us greatly. We are men and women who have benefited much from a heritage that has been rich with the principles and teachings of the Word of God. The gospel of grace has been preached loudly in this country. And Father, we are men and women who have a responsibility. Our country stands at an important threshold. Lord, we commit ourselves again this morning to the faithful preaching of the gospel. And it means for us a holy life. And we pray that through the preaching of the word today that you will call us to holiness. Lord, renew in us a hunger and a passion for godliness. Raise up a people in this community that will be faithful preachers of the gospel. Father, we do thank you for your healing hand your merciful hand that you have shown the people of grace this week. We thank you for the good news from Mike Simmons' family and you continue to, to encourage that family with physical healing. We thank you that Jim and Linda Case's granddaughter is better today because you have interceded on their behalf. We thank you for hearing our prayers. We come now to this opportunity to give back a portion of what you've given us and we give it liberally and we give it with great joy realizing that everything we have, even the very breath that we breathe today, is a gift from you. You own it all. And we celebrate your kindness this morning. Lord, we do pray that you will bless the preaching of the word. Bless the worship. We pray that as of having been here today, you will be pleased and blessed by what we have done today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13, we're going to actually read our text in two parts this morning. The text includes the first 17 verses of John 13. What I want to do first is read just verse 1 and then get us into the the remaining verses. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world... He now showed them the full extent of his love. Ladies and gentlemen, John 13, 1 could really, as a verse, stand alone. It almost could lift it up out of the page because it represents a transition between the events that have taken place in chapters 12 and the events that are to follow here in the upper room leading up to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In context, here's what's going on in John 13. In fact, all of the gospel accounts indicate that as the Passover approached, Jesus became aware that his public ministry to the Jews was over. Even as Jesus makes his final journey down from Bethany to Jerusalem, chapters 12, and then even the day of the triumphal entry when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem for the last time, the shouts of the people, Hosanna, and the waving of the palm branches, even then Jesus knows that the hour of his humiliation and death is near. 
John 13, 1, represents the end of our Lord's public ministry and the beginning of those final hours of powerful intimacy that He'll spend with the disciples, the ones that He loved the most. Now, most of my comments will center around John 13, 1. But I want to save those comments to the, toward the end of the sermon because John 13, 1 lends itself beautifully to the sacrament that we're going to celebrate here in just a few minutes. So, before I get to those comments, let's read now the verses 2 through 17, and you get a full sense of what's going on here on that very special evening. Verse 2, The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who, was, who, said, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, uh, clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, what I, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and you also shall uh, wash one another's feet, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. As I've studied this text, I, I can identify three things that I think our Lord is trying to accomplish or is accomplishing here in this scene in the upper room. First, Jesus takes this opportunity to summarize the gospel once again to the disciples. It's, it's encapsulated in that phrase in John 13, 1. He now showed them the full extent of his love. So he's summarizing the gospel for the disciples. Secondly, he's reminding the disciples... Of their mission. Jesus is telling the disciples, The time has come for me to leave this earth. I must go to the Father. My ministry is about to conclude, but your ministry is about to begin. So he's reminding the disciples of their great mission. And finally, he's telling the disciples why he must go. Now, in these verses, we find one of the most beautiful pictures of servanthood in all of Scripture. On this final evening together with the disciples, Jesus takes off his outer garment, he wraps a towel around himself, kneels before his disciples, and then, to their surprise, he washes their feet. In this dramatic way, Jesus teaches the disciples the real meaning of his death. This selfless act, the washing of their feet, is a foreshadow of what our Savior is about to experience on the cross. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever need or look for a Christian ethic, if you ever need a basis for Christian living, here it is. Right here in this text. Christ, the Son of God, who leaves heaven 
comes down and becomes the servant par excellence. In fact, that service that we have every Easter, the Thursday before Easter, we have the Monday Thursday service. That's where it comes from, right here in this upper room scene. The word Monday is a Latin comes from the Latin word mandatum, which means a mandate. The Lord commissions the disciples to do as He does. In verse 17, He says, "Did you notice? It's not enough just to know this, but you must do it." Now, what did Jesus have in mind? Well, He certainly has in mind Calvary. He knows that the time of His death is near. Jesus knows that the time of His departure from the earth is near. Christ here is laying down the fundamental principle of the kingdom. I must leave, but I remain in you, and you remain in the world. Christ in us, in the world. Christ is teaching the disciples that the kingdom has come. I reign in the world, and I will reign through you. Now, it's Passover time, and you know the implications of that very sacred festival. Here, Jesus does the unexpected. He breaks a couple of customs. First, he washes their feet. Now, gang, it's quite an unusual, uncommon thing for a Hebrew male to do the feet washing. In fact, most often it was done by an alien slave in the household. On occasions, the women or children would wash the feet, but not the Hebrew male. Not a Hebrew male washing another Hebrew's feet. And Jesus breaks this custom, and he, in humility, washes their feet. The other thing he does is he does it at the wrong time. It's customary when guests come into the home, before the meal is served, the feet are washed, and then they enjoy the meal together. Now, gang, Jesus doesn't break tradition to offend the, the disciples. He breaks tradition to teach the disciples. And Jesus knew that it was tradition that had caused so many of his own people, the Jews, to miss this extravagant gift of grace that the Father had offered. Jesus knew that his tradition that had caused so many of his own people to turn away from the gospel. And in this dramatic way, Jesus teaches the disciples the true nature of the gospel. Now, Peter's resistance is really understandable if you place it within the context of his culture. And Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, you don't understand. If I don't wash your feet, you can have no relationship with me. You have no choice. Now, there's a warning here in the Scripture for those who suffer from the pride of self-righteousness. There's a warning here for those among us who instinctively resist the suggestion that we need divine cleansing. Jesus breaks tradition to teach Peter this fundamental principle of the kingdom. It's not the wealthy who will probably come. It's not the man who is well who will probably come. It's the man who has come to the end of himself. The man who has come to the end of his rope and says, Wash me, for I am unclean. And the washing of Peter's feet is a symbol of the total cleansing that we so desperately need. And no other cleansing, no other cleansing is required. Now let's look back in verse 1. Now, here's what's happening. Jesus, again, has summarized the gospel. Not everyone will receive the gospel. In fact, we've learned that the gospel often offends people. Jesus has told the disciples of their mission, I must go, but you will remain in the world. I will reign. My kingdom will come and reign through you, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I must leave and go to the Father. And now we come back to verse 1, and here's the key to the entire story. 
Here's why this is all possible. Let's read verse 1 again. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Did you pick up on that phrase? It's one of the most intriguing phrases in all the New Testament. It's one of my most favorite. He now showed them the full extent of his love. John here, this great evangelist, is emphasizing the love that God has for his own. If you have the King James Version, it reads, He loved them unto the end. Now John uses a Greek noun here that's used no other place in this gospel. It has a twofold meaning. It means, on one hand, he loves unto the end, and he loves to the utmost. And it's, it's, it's likely that John's intention is for both meanings to be included here. That the Father loves His own unto the end and to the utmost. When I was a little boy growing up, I've heard preachers on more than one occasion preach John, this text, John 13, 1. And on more than one occasion, I heard preachers interpret it this way. God loves to the guttermost. Have you ever heard that? He loves to the guttermost. Now, it's true that God loves to the guttermost. I mean, it's true that God has the power to save the most wretched of sinners. But that's not a proper interpretation of this text. That's bad exegesis. He's not, John is not saying that God loves to the guttermost. That's true. But that's not what he's saying here. The NIV, the one you probably have with you this morning, captures it best in the phrase, He showed them the full extent of His love. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the love that Jeremiah speaks of. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. It means that Christ loves His own in a different way. He loves His own completely, we could say. He loves His own perfectly. He loves His own fully. He loves His own comprehensively. He loves His own to the uttermost. I submit to you that John is speaking here not of, a, not of the common or universal love that God extends to all men. John is speaking here of an effectual love, a love that's reserved for the elect, that redeeming love that saves His own. Brother and sister, if you're in Christ, God loves you the same as He loves His own Son. For you and I are loved with the love of Christ. It means that God has lavished on us all the riches of His grace for all eternity. Now, I've been anxious about getting to this part of the sermon because I'm going to sing a solo here. I don't get to sing... used to. I, uh, years ago, when the church first started, I, I was known to sing a solo once in a while. Then Carla started singing, and you didn't want to hear me. You just want to hear Carla. And, and I don't get invited to sing. In fact, I found out just not too long ago when I lead worship, sometimes the sound guys even turn my mic down so I won't mess up the ensemble. So I've, uh, I've elected to sing part of the sermon today. And I'm going to sing part of a song that I learned when I was a child in Sunday school. Some of you, you remember this song. It goes like this. Deep and wide. Deep and wide there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Deep and wide. Deep and wide there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Then we change the words around. Wide and deep. I like that part. Wide and deep. Wide and deep. We'd sing that song over and over again. You know where that comes from, guys? 
Deep and wide. Right here. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. It might serve us well to remember some of those songs we learned when we were in Sunday school growing up. Deep and wide reminds us that not only did Christ reach down to save us from sin, not only is salvation about a saving us from hell, but salvation is about restoration. He is continuing to do a work in us. Guys, I'm speaking of an effectual love the Father has for His own. The love that Jesus was teaching the disciples in this scene in the upper room. And I, I do not, I confess to you, I do not completely understand this effectual love. I struggle in this process of sanctification, trying to scratch out this thing on my own. All the while, God is committed to loving us, to growing us. Guys, sanctification is part of this effectual love. Sanctification is a gift of grace. We're in this great summer series uh, right now. Jimmy's teaching on building an irresistible testimony. And I love this series. I think it's so effective. And we've gone through two parts of it. Remember the first part? This first part of the uh, irresistible testimony. Remember it? Contentment. Oh, how attractive that is to the lost world. To see a people who are truly content in the midst of all of this prosperity. Men are searching for meaning to life. We rise up and show that we are truly content. What a great testimony. The other one he preached last week, the second part, remember it? Humility. Jesus said, I am meek. Be like me. How attractive is humility to the lost world? Now we're going to hear about six more parts to this summer series, building an irresistible testimony. Now you want me to tell you where he's going with this? If I tell you, you can't tell him that you know. <laughs> you know, we... We go back 10 years and this could really harm our relationship if he knows that I told you where he's going with this. He's, it's a setup. He's setting you guys up. I'm not going to tell you. Uh, Steve Austell would tell him. I know he would. I'm not going to tell you. I'll just give you a hint. This building of irresistible testimony, it has to do with the effectual love the Father has for his own. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Now, there's something else about this effectual love. It's unconditional. You notice the group that Jesus has around him in the upper room? You think by now these guys would be on board completely, sold out fanatics of the gospel, but they're not. They're afraid, they're frightened, they're cowards. Uh, Jesus knows, in fact, that the majority of these men will not even be around when he goes to the cross. Peter's going to deny him three times before the night's over. But Jesus loves him. Yet he showed them the full extent of his love. And then finally, this effectual love carries with it the idea of eternality. That is, it's an eternal love. It's not just for this life, but it will remain with us for all eternity. A few months ago, I had the privilege of going to um, attend a memorial service for a man by the name of Dick Potter. Now, if you're an old-time Memphian, you remember Dick Potter. He uh, was a TV guy on WMC-TV spent some time in radio, and if you go back far enough, this is before my time, but I understand that Dick Potter hosted the Howdy Doody show on Saturday mornings. Uh, a couple of, by the way, Dick Potter is our own Amy Smith's father, Chris and Amy Smith. Uh, Dick Potter, a couple of years ago, with, was diagnosed with cancer. 
Um, two months, I don't know how long ago, but several months ago, he passed away, succumbed to uh, the disease. And I went to his memorial service, and in that memorial service, they played a portion of his testimony that he gave to a group of men from First Evan. And I was so moved by this testimony. I, I, I had to get a copy of this tape. And what you're, gonna, you're about to hear is a segment of his testimony, just a short part of his testimony, where he talks about the idea that God's love is an eternal love. In fact, he talks about, he's going to talk about the almost perfect hymn. That's where I got my sermon title today, if you've noticed. The almost perfect hymn. This is what Dick Potter grabs hold of in the final days of his life. He knows he's dying. And he grabs hold of this effectual love of the Father. I want you to listen to just this portion of his testimony. Let's get to the hymn. Because um, some years ago, a good Bible scholar uh, told me that uh, there were two kinds of hymns. There were the perfect hymns and there were imperfect hymns. And it was easy to tell the difference. The perfect hymn takes a Bible passage and puts it to music. It is the Word of God. It is perfect. The imperfect hymn uh, takes his own thoughts, his own attempt to glory God, to uh, be to the glory of God, and he puts it to music, and it comes out great. But it's not Bible quotation, so it's imperfect. Well, this hymn is imperfect, but it's also one of the most nearly perfect hymns ever written. And uh, it is one of the most nearly, from a, a theological standpoint, from a doctrinal standpoint, from a positional standpoint, and I can testify... It is the greatest from an emotional standpoint. Uh, it is fundamental teaching. It keeps it simple. And uh, to get an idea of the depth of it, I could take you through it verse by verse, but I'm not going to. We don't have time. But let me just, just the first two verses. Jesus loved me. This I know, because the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. That's the fact. This I know. That's the faith. Because the Bible tells me so, that's the foundation of the faith. Let's go through it and listen to the words. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, we are weak, but he is strong. And then the verse, that beautiful verse. In the second verse, Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. In the verse, and then the third verse, and boy, did this ever speak to me in the hospital. Jesus loves me, loves me still, though I'm very weak and ill comes down from his throne on high here to watch me where I lie. And the verse, and then that final verse, triumphant future. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way since I love him when I die. He will take me home on high. And when I was too ill uh, to remember those words, uh, too drugged up, too tired, I always could sing in my heart, 
Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. On what fact do I base that statement? The Bible tells me so. Amen. During the uh, end of my own sister's life, uh, in fact, right after she passed away, I committed to memory as a young boy a passage of scripture that I have cherished for years and years. In fact, every time, almost every time I conduct a funeral, I use this particular passage. I memorize all my childhood scriptures in the King James Version, so if you're not familiar with the King James, you might not recognize this text. But it goes like this. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And where that's found? In the upper room. Just a few verses later, John 14, 1, Jesus comforts his disciples with the fact that this effectual love will go on for eternity. He loves us, and he has showed us the full extent of his love. When I was uh, studying this text, the song that kept, the phrase that kept going over and over in my mind was a part of a song that we sing here quite often in Grace, Oh, love that will not let me go. That's the phrase I couldn't get out of my mind. I'd like to sing that as we make a transition to the table this morning. Would you stand? It's in your worship folder. There's a section there entitled The Lord's Supper Congregational Worship. Let's sing that song. So elders come and
I thought you'd like to sing just a part of the almost perfect hymn. this table this morning, we thank you, Father, that it shouts at us the gospel, the gospel of grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.